This unity and this harmony in our world goes right back to the early chapters of the book of Genesis. You find this disunity and disharmony is the direct result of what has become known as sin. Looked upon by the world with contempt, but nevertheless, what we find is that what we are makes it impossible for any given society to live in peace and harmony of the perfect kind. It's no strange thing, therefore, when you read throughout the Bible that there is this disharmony and disunity. Uh, and when we come to the New Testament, and again, let me remind you that the New Testament period was not as many people imagined, wasn't this glorious period where there was just glorious harmony everywhere. There was disunity at times, disagreement. We find it even with Paul and certain of the disciples, the apostles. Paul addresses this great problem when he writes, great church, it had much to commend it, but he begins in the very first chapter to bring to their understanding the dysfunctional nature of sinful living. And he does so, of course, and I've had the privilege of preaching on the text of the latter section of chapter one before here in Crumlin. But it was manifest in many, many ways, not least because they had their favorite preachers, of course, as you read in the 12th verse. There were those who were of the school of Paul, some of the school of Apollos, some of Cephas, which of course is the name of Peter, and some of Christ. Uh, the ones who were of Christ were simply not followers of Christ in the truest sense, they just weren't of Cephas or of Paul or of Paulus. It was a sectarian situation that existed and it was, it was grossly wicked and Paul addresses it. And he does so because he understand, is, understands that this kind of disunity invariably demoralizes the people of God. It is so very, very destructive. We can understand that, can't we? Um, we can understand how there's disagreements between Christians. But the fact of the matter is when the people of God, when we come together, we're to live in harmony. And we do that by believing the same things. That's basically it, isn't it? Believing the same things. Now that doesn't mean to say there has to be this universal unanimity on things. I've got some friends and I would be an ardent Liverpool supporter and I've actually got Manchester United friends. I support in the Irish League Linfield and I've got Glenn Torrance supporters as friends. But these, these are peripheral issues, aren't they? There can be animosity at times, even in things like this, can't there? You just need to go to, to Glasgow and find the kind of animosity that exists, exists between Celtic supporters and Ranger supporters. And sometimes that it has even been murderous. But these are very peripheral issues. These are not the issues that I'm speaking about. I'm speaking about actually living in such a fashion as we can live in harmony where there can be this, this love and compassion that God has designed to exist among the people of God. And we are not to live in such a situation as we demoralize others. People have an expectation 
of Christians, and we Christians have expectations of one another, haven't we? And we are, are fully justified in having these expectations. Fully justified. It's when these expectations are not realised that we find this demoralising effect, this weakening effect. Added to the demoralising of the church, it scandalises the gospel, doesn't it? You've heard people say before, well, the people of God, they, they, they can't live together. They're always quarrelling, always fighting. There's always a spirit of contention. And the world just loves that. It plays right to their agenda, doesn't it? And it does so with, with a great deal of effect. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the message that God has given, which we are told in the book of Romans, chapter 1, is the power of God unto salvation. The power to take a ruined, destroyed, broken life and to make it new, with new hopes and aspirations, a new dignity, a new destiny. This gospel is the most precious thing that the world can ever know. This gospel that tells us that Christ died, was buried and raised again from the dead. This one who entered this world was the eternal God, is the eternal God who made all things, and the one by whom all things consist. The one who entered the world, made the world, left the world, after being murdered, put to death, but was raised again from the dead and ever lives to be the advocate of his people, the sovereign ruler of this great sphere of the world and all the worlds round about it. But in a third sense, this disunity does then as considering the two things that we have, just very briefly, it paralyzes our witness, doesn't it? Since it scandalizes the gospel, it's of necessity that I would point out that that simply is the paralyzing of our witness. It makes it of none effect. That people won't listen anymore, they won't hear. And it's of no little significance that whenever we consider the church as seen by the world, which is actually represented to the world in terms of robes, bells and smells for the most part. But the world sees the church as outdated, outmoded and, and not a relevance. And not a relevance. But we are the people who are utterly relevant, aren't we? Because we worship the God who is the eternally relevant one. The God who was, who is, and evermore shall be. The God who never changes, same yesterday, today, and forever. Knows neither variance nor shadow of turning. We're the God people. And we're the people in whom God has put his spirit, his seal on the day of redemption. Now the apostle brings the Corinthians somewhat abruptly to this great terminus that all these squabbles, all the differences that were existing then in the church of Corinth and still exist today because their people have their favorite preachers and their favorite themes and their, their pet subjects. 
But he puts it like this as he comes to the end of chapter 1. He expands upon it throughout the second chapter and indeed throughout the whole of his first letter. He puts it like this. If I can read just a few verses from the latter end of it. That no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto his wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it's written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. So let not any single individual usurp the place of Jesus Christ, no matter how high or how intensely influential that person may be. Jesus Christ is the sovereign one who rules in the affairs of men, who sets up kingdoms, pulls down kingdoms, who made the world, who is benevolent and kind and generous beyond all human telling, who entered this world with a singular purpose to die, the just for the unjust, to reconcile sinners like you and I to God. That's what he does. Made all God's wisdom that we might comprehend God, Righteousness that we might be made compliant to his laws. Sanctification that we might be conformed to his image. And last but not least, made unto us redemption. For we are the redeemed of the Lord and we say so. But he continues. He doesn't leave it at that. What he does is he weaves his own hopes and desires and his aspirations further into the second chapter. And I which he restates and he's reiterating words that he's written before. When I came unto you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now why does he do this? Well, he tells us in verse 5, chapter 2, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Human beings are full of opinions, aren't they? You just need to listen to Stephen Nolan on Sunday, or forgive me, weekday mornings. And people have a voice now, haven't they? And they're not a bit shy about expressing their views, and some of it is so unworthy, so unfit to be transmitted over the airwaves, but there it is. The Apostle Paul says, look, I've got a singular message. A singular message, he summarizes it like this. I'm determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And what he's doing here, and if you want to, to look points, if you're inclined to do so, my first point with regard to this verse is simply this. Paul's singleness of mind. His single-mindedness. Now, here's a guy who was noted as a very brilliant man. You just need to read his letters to discover that. His letter to the Romans has stood over the centuries as a great treatise, even by the greatest of academics, where the Apostle Paul reasons, and he uses such closely reasoned arguments that the Apostle Peter would say in his letter his second letter, that there's certain things about Paul that are hard to understand. But he's able to deal with the intricacies, the very details, getting right down to base level of the wonder of this grace of God of which this man was utterly intoxicated. He was affected by it. His single-mindedness. 
And yet, here was a man who had much of which he could boast. Here was the great Judaism, the great first century oracle, if you like, Saul of Tarsus. The great champion of a Judaistic world of his day. A Judaism that he loved, that he lived for. Educated at the feet of Gamaliel, the great philosopher. He had much of which he could boast. But he's not going to boast of his academic achievements. He's not going to boast of his achievements as a Judaizer, of which he tells us writing to the Philippians, that in his generation he was the man of his day, as touching the law was blameless, a Pharisee. He was the guy of the day, wasn't he? The go-to guy in Judaism. And secular history even tells us something about Saul of Tarsus as being the one who would settle many of the arguments that were common among Judaism and still are to this very day. Single-mindedness. And it would appear to me that his argument is one that not only simply makes sense, but takes us to the very pinnacle of spirituality. And when I speak about spirituality, I'm not speaking about it as generally spoken by the world, but biblical spirituality, to know God, to enjoy God, to know the God who has revealed himself, to be enjoyed, to engage with him, to enter in to what he has covenanted to be and to do for his people, because in actual fact, all that God has revealed himself to be, he is for his people. And the only thing he has kept to himself, which he can't do otherwise with, he can't replicate himself. He can't replicate himself. But he's passed to us his grace and his mercy. He has given his son for us. That we should be single-minded. That everything should come, come right down to this. Jesus Christ and him crucified. And all the implications of that. The wonder of it, the wonder of this gracious God, the God who fills eternity itself, actually comes not as an angel but the seed of Abraham because it behoved him. This God who is holy and true and perfect in all the ways that God is true. This God could not satisfy his own demands by giving an angel or an archangel a cherubim or a cherubim. He must come himself. He must pay the debt. He must bear the judgment that his own law demands. This is a single-mindedness, isn't it? And it governs everything. Every department of life. Every little sector of life. Those areas of life that some way or another escape. And we can think ourselves adequate for them. God demands that he fills them. That every area of life should be lived as a Christ life here on earth. You see, it begs the question, doesn't it? When you come to read these words, understanding something of the nature of Saul of Tarsus as Paul previously was, you need to go back into the Acts of the Apostles and read there chapters maybe 6, 7, 8, 9, certainly 7, 8, 9. To discover the kind of character this man was, 
So intense was he. So besotted was he with his religion that when Christianity or Jesus Christ, the great founder of this faith, whenever men and women start to follow, so filled with an unholy invective was he that he wouldn't stop at even killing the disciples of Jesus. We have record that he, he gives sanction to the death of the first martyr, Stephen. We know that he breathed out threatenings, to use authorised language, against the church of Jesus Christ. But on the road to a mess, a transaction took place when God sovereignly comes and faces down this great enemy. This murderous thug of a man. For that's just exactly what he was. Sincere, unquestionably with regard to his religion, but so terribly and tragically wrong. He wouldn't even stop at murder, but he's faced down by a gracious God. He's not seeking after God on the road to a mess. He's got his pockets filled with the kind of documents that were necessary in order for him to carry out that which his, was his desire to eradicate the name of Jesus Christ from the face of the earth. That was Saul of Tarsus. But God comes to him graciously, benevolently, in the abundance of his grace. And this man's eyes are opened by an encounter of just a very short period of time. And it's all changed, isn't it? From being utterly preoccupied and besotted with his Judaism, he becomes intoxicated with Jesus Christ. Nothing else matters. With all the fame and all the reputation that he had as a Judaizer, he does tell us, doesn't he, writing to the Philippians, he counts it all, to use the old language, dung, worthless, rubbish, the offscorn. Worth nothing. And he's so fixed, transfixed upon the person of Jesus Christ. The singleness of the apostle's mind is to be the singleness of your mind and mine. We're to be single-minded people. We are to be, in the truest dictionary definition of the word, bigots. Bigots. Which actually is translated, by God I will. That's what we're to be. No room for anything else, no room for other religions or anything else. Because we are the people of God who have been brought by the grace of God into fellowship with a God who is utterly intolerant of anything that is in contradistinction to himself. God is a pure spirit and is intolerant and incapable of suffering anything that lives in contradiction to himself. Therefore, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to the people of God, whereby being justified freely by his grace, we stand complete in Jesus Christ as we live and breathe, even though we are yet sinners and simultaneously saints. The wonder of it all is that God has called us to be his people, and to be his people demands, if it demands anything as this, single-mindedness.
solitary mindedness. That nothing else governs our thinking, our talking, our living, but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now that, you will agree, is revolutionary, isn't it? The term has developed over this last number of years, enjoying God. It's a wondrous term, isn't it? And yet it's a strange one, isn't it? It's enjoying God. I remember hearing a guy some years ago, and he was quoting the, your catechism. You know, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And his son, he quoted for man's chief end is to glorify God and endure him forever. There's a kind of sense in which we as Christians can almost project that kind of notion. That this is an endurance. And we are called to endure, aren't we? But in enduring, we enjoy. That's the wonderful paradox of it all, isn't it? As we endure the hardships and the difficulties, the trials, the tribulations to which we are appointed by God himself, we enjoy. You remember the three temptations of our Lord Jesus in the wilderness. It's a staggering thing, isn't it, how ignorant we can be at times. I'm not going to make too many admissions to you this morning. I don't need to. But it's not very long ago, in reading of the temptations, which you'll come to in your Sunday evening studies if you haven't passed them already, those staggering words, which I'd read many, many, many times, but never registered. And he being driven of the Spirit into the wilderness. Jesus was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. And you may be driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. Trial and tribulation through which we are brought by the Lord Jesus Christ. We're driven by the Spirit. The Spirit of God appointed this for our Lord Jesus Christ to be tempted. This was by divine appointment. This was divine arrangement. This was part of the divine agenda. That Jesus should be tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. And yet, his single-mindedness, which of course is unique, isn't it? But we as Christians, even though this is a high, high calling, and it is a high calling, yet the old poet did put it like this, a man's reach must always exceed his grasp. We're not having yet attained it. We, we press on. We're in the world of the not yet. But we're pressing on toward the prize of the high calling of God as in Christ Jesus. That's, that's the purpose for which we exist as Christians. We're pressing on. Or as we used to sing, pressing on the upward way. You hide through gaining every day. Oh yeah. Is that true? Yeah. We don't tell lies, we just sing them, don't we, at times. But single-mindedness is that aspiration that we must possess in order that we might bear that hallmark of authentic Christianity. I'm determined to know nothing among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. The second thing, and more briefly, is this. The simplicity of the apostolic message. I, I don't know about you. Uh, it's lovely to see some new faces that I've not seen before. And then to insult the rest of you, some old faces that I've seen quite a few times. 
The wonder is this, that the world has a perverse view of the gospel. The Western world that has been, been utterly um, preached, uh, our own country where gospel witness just about in every hamlet, and yet there's a great deal of ignorance as to the simplicity of the message. What is the gospel? There are four gospels that we have in our Bible. They're called the gospels. Three of them are what they call uh, summary gospels. The, the synoptic gospels they're called. And then you have John's gospel. The doctrinal or the theological gospel. The gospel that concentrates on certain facets of the life of Jesus. But the gospel can be summarized as the apostle does writing to the Corinthians. It's that Christ that died... It's Christ died, was buried, and rose again from the dead. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is not the social gospel. The gospel is a saving message of Jesus Christ, and it is narrow. It presents to us the narrow way, the straight gate, the broad way, the, the wide way, the straight gate, the narrow gate. It presents to us the message of Jesus Christ. Paul's message was simple, wasn't it? What does he say to the Romans? This gospel is the power of God unto salvation. He's not ashamed of it. It's the power of God unto salvation. Writing to the Galatians, he puts it like this. God forbid. God forbid that I should glory. Save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by him the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. And the world is its opinions, its philosophies, its various notions, diverse and perverse as they may be. I hear them, I hear them so much they impact upon me but I'm able to deflect them all they're not going to impose themselves upon me and his prayer is God forbid I see glory and he had a great deal of glory and as an individual with a great lot that he could boast of the simplicity of the message what, what is the message that the world needs to hear what, what is the message it is simple, isn't it? It's a simple message. That God is what God is. That he is infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being power and wisdom and holiness and justice and goodness and truth. And we are everything that God is not. So you want to find a great contradiction. Look at God, consider yourself. And that's what we are. Living, breathing, thinking, seeing sinners. Contradiction to God. But it was for sinners that God sent his son, of which the gospel tells us of Jesus Christ. It's the wonder of it, isn't it? And what is the wonder of this message of the gospel? It's this. And it comes down to this. And a great deal has been concentrated upon over many years, and rightly so, of the sovereignty of God. Especially over this last 40 or 50 years. Thanks be to God for it. But there's another aspect, another truth, that sadly has been pushed to the side. And it's this truth. The sufficiency of Jesus Christ to save sinners. 
to meet the demands of divine justice. God sent his son into this world. And he met the terms of justice. And all that the law demanded, he met it. He did what he was appointed to do. He gave himself a ransom for sinners. He died for sinners. What does it mean? It means this. This message is of grace. Pure grace. Not contaminated by the fingerprints of man. It comes from God and returns to God. It comes from from the God who is the pure spirit to dwell in people who are impure that they should become pure. For God has declared them pure and he is presently working to make them pure through the sanctifying work of his spirit that at the very last in the day of redemption it will all just come together so wondrously the simplicity of the message of the gospel is this God is what God is I am what I am I can't meet this God that I must meet when I die But this God would have me to live for him now, to enjoy him now, where I am. It's simple, isn't it? That this God is sufficient. And the message is simple, isn't it? Not by works of righteousness that we have done, but by his mercy hath he saved us. It's a wondrous thing, isn't it? Now today, the 13th of October, 2019, is the canonization of John Henry Newman by the Roman Catholic Church. And just as I'm standing here this morning, you're sitting here, that service is going on in Rome, just this time. What is our message as distinct from the message of that system? It says that Jesus Christ is enough. He's sufficient. Anything added to him takes from him. We can add nothing to him. We can take nothing from him. We simply receive it as a pure gift from the God who is benevolent and generous to give it. To put it in the words of an old hymn, nothing in my hands I bring simply to thy cross I claim. That's it. Because the matter of works is really problematic, isn't it? The apostle Paul suffered it in his day. In his Judaism. And it was a simple one, wasn't it? The question always arose in his mind and arises in the minds of those who are seeking to justify themselves before God and it's a simple question says, how can I ever know that I've done enough? And the answer comes back loud and clear. You can't ever know. You've done enough. Jesus Christ did it all. He did it all perfectly. That you should stand complete and accepted in the beloved. That's the wonder of being Christian. We are the people of God. And I can close with this very briefly. For the Apostle Paul, it gave him meaning. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Single-minded. Simple message, a sense of meaning, a sense of belonging to the God who made you, united to the God who 
knows how you function, knows how you think, knows everything about you, knows how you tick. So if you have a problem, you take it to the God who knows all about your humanity, all about your, the twistedness of your character, how distorted you actually are, and he can straighten you out, put you on the right road, direct you in the right way, to walk on the paths of righteousness for his name's sake, for his glory, that no flesh should glory in his presence, is the holy object of the Apostle Paul as directed by the Holy Spirit. He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. A sense of meaning. I heard not very long ago of a young man just in his mid-teens who sadly took his own life. He phoned his mother before he carried out his um, well, killed himself. He phoned his mother with these words. It's not worth living. There's nothing to live for. It's not worth living. There's nothing to live for. Probably about 16 years of age. Not worth living. Nothing to live for. I can't think of anything really much more tragic than that. Young people in our own province, in the little six counties of Northern Ireland, here we are, we hold a record for teenage suicide. Not worth living. Nothing to live for. The Church of Jesus Christ has this message. It's one of, one of hope, isn't it? It's... One of hope. Let, let, let me read something to you, uh, if I can. Um, the, the, a modern song, there's a verse of it goes like this. There's a hope that stands the test of time, that lifts my eyes beyond the beckoning grave, to see the matchless beauty of a day divine, when I behold his face. When sufferings cease and sorrows die, and every longing satisfied, then joy unspeakable will flood my soul, for I am truly home. So different, isn't it? Nothing to live for. Living for what God has appointed us to live for gives hope and meaning. A sense of meaning, doesn't it? It's for us to enjoy, to engage with a God who delights to be engaged with, to enjoy his fellowship and the fellowship of like-minded people. There's just nothing like it. It's incomparable. It's as the God is himself who loves us and who in Jesus Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Incomparable. That's worth living for, isn't it? And when you compare it, what else is worth living for but this, this gospel and this life of fellowship, enjoying forgiveness?
We'll sing together our closing hymn.